Welcome to the Sing When You're Losing podcast, a podcast about resilience. I believe that setbacks and struggles aren't meant to stop us, they're meant to teach us. Across this series, I interview athletes, coaches, managers, trainers, and more so that we can glean from their wisdom and learn from their stories for how to sing when you're losing. I hope you enjoyed the last episode, All About Resilience, with Dr. Mustafa Sarkar. Mustafa is Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Psychology at Nottingham Trent University. In this episode, I get the privilege of interviewing Sam Ocho. Sam is a player in the NFL. Having spent the last nine years playing linebacker for the Arizona Cardinals and then the Chicago Bears, he is currently a free agent. While I hope he is able to find a new team soon, what is more impressive about Sam is his passion for making the world a better place. Sam is a peacemaker, a connector, a mentor, a fundraiser, an advocate, and so much more. Football is what he does, but he's never let it define his identity. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and please go and pre-order his new book now, Let the World See You, How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes, at www.samachobook.com. Now, it's time for you to sit back and relax and enjoy the conversation. I'm your host, Buddy Owen, and it's time to learn to sing when you're losing. And thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, definitely, definitely. So could you just tell us where you're from and how you got into playing football? Yeah, so I'm from Dallas, Texas, uh, born and raised in Dallas, and uh, got into playing football at a not really too young of an age. I started off playing soccer, um, which most people around the world know is football. I started off soccer, basketball, and as I grew, I started playing football around 13, 14 years old, and Mm -hmm. I've been playing ever since. Excellent. And uh, you were a standout in high school. I think a few, what was that, All-American honors in high school even? Yeah. And then you taken it Texas University of Texas. So what was that like playing Division One football? Yeah, it was definitely a great opportunity. It wasn't a goal growing up. I didn't think I was going to go play Division One football. Didn't know if it was going to be possible. Didn't even hope for it. And then I got a chance to go play in college and the University of Texas was the school I got a chance to go play at. And it was a fun, it was a really fun experience. I, I still, even though living in the UK, I watch as many games as possible, usually up till um, one or two in the morning on Saturdays watching college football. I think people in the UK don't really understand why college football is, is such a big thing. What, what do you think it is that, that draws the crowds in and so much interest around college sports in the States? Yeah, one of the things I've seen with college sports is that it just seems very authentic. A lot of times people look at professional athletes, whether you're playing football, soccer, cricket, whatever sport you're playing, and people think that the players do it for the money. And oftentimes it's, it's true. But when you're in college, it's usually not the case. Usually the players there are playing for the love of the game. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It does feel a bit more authentic. It's a, a bit more exciting, often a bit more high scoring as well. Um, yes. Yeah. And um, so tell us what position you played. Yeah, so I played linebacker uh, in college. I played defensive end. In high school, I played both offense and defense. And then now I'm playing solely defense. I play linebacker, which your job is to go and try and get to the quarterback before he throws it or to stop the runner uh, before he goes and scores a touchdown, really before he gains a yard. Yeah. 
And have you managed to come over to London yet for any of the, uh, the games in London at Wembley? I have not. I have some good friends, obviously, and some teammates and former teammates who have gone and played in London. I've only been to visit, and that was years and years ago. Well, hopefully you'll still get the chance. So um, last I heard, you were a free agent. Is that still the case? It is. So you're still looking for that, that next shot? Yeah, still training and staying ready and also uh, forwarding on other things I'm doing in life, writing a book. I'm really excited about doing some uh, work in the community and different communities in the States. I've been excited about my family and I do work in Nigeria as well. And so uh, still training and getting ready, but excited about other opportunities. Absolutely. And I, I want to talk about some of those. So uh, I th I, we'll go ahead and get into that, actually. And I, and I want to ask you, so one of the things that I work with athletes on is that transition from uh, player into normal life, as it were, the, the post-competition. And you'll know even better than I do how many players struggle with making that transition. Uh, the stats for uh, Premier League soccer, so football here is that up to 80% end up broke, divorced, or depressed within three years of retirement. I know the, the stats in the NFL are quite high as well. Do you, know, do you know the current stats around that kind of thing? Yeah, the stats were similar. I mean, when I came in the NFL, those were the stats. 80% number was pretty accurate. And so those stats are similar, and I think we're working on trying to get those numbers down. Yeah, so... What So you're talking about a lot of the community work that you do. I'm excited about the book that you've got coming out as well. Uh, how, at what point did you start thinking about the future? How early in your career were you thinking, I'm not going to be able to do this for the rest of my life? I was thinking about that, honestly, before I even, before it even became a career. When I was in college, though I knew there was an opportunity to play professionally, I was always thinking that People say the NFL really stands for not for long. The average career span is 3.1 years. And so it's crazy. I was always thinking that way. And um, though I'm going on my, I finished nine years, going on my 10th year, I still am thinking, man, what would be that next thing? Yeah. So, uh, so some of the community stuff you're doing, obviously writing a book is going to be a help as well. What, what do you think your focus is going to be coming up to that next stage of life? Because obviously you're not a player longer than you are a player. So yeah, what are you hoping to do? Definitely. I mean, the, I think I was put on this earth to encourage people. And so that has taken different shapes. A lot of times, oftentimes, speaking, I do a ton of speaking events at colleges and churches and schools and companies. And, and then now that encouragement, encouraging voice has taken shape as a book. And so even the writing process has been a ton of fun for me, just writing about ways to encourage people and just freedom that you can find. And when you stop putting on masks and start really being authentic and true to who you are. And so those are two really key things that I think I'm going to be doing moving forward. One thing I always love doing as well. A third thing is I just, I love bringing people together. And oftentimes that will involve around a cause that's important, whether it's um, race relations or in Nigeria, we've done hospitals. That's going to be a part of what I, what I do moving forward. That's fantastic. And you're now, I mean, you know, you've had a, by NFL terms, a very long career, which you're hoping hasn't ended yet. Um, are you using your voice to influence younger players now? Can you, can you see that influence happening? Yeah, the interesting thing about the NFL is that you're only a rookie 
for the first, really, realistically, the first few games of your first year. Once you get into your second year, you're automatically a veteran. You're, you're no longer a rookie because the career span is so short, as we mentioned. And so since my second, third year, I've been not only having mentors that I've looked up to, but mentoring younger players as well. There's one of my teammates who I played with about three years ago and even two years ago. And he was a rookie when I was going into my sixth, seventh year. He called me the other day and asked, man, what are you doing? And why are you doing the things you do in the community? And we just chatted for a bit and we've, just kept in touch and built our relationship. He would come to my house and we'd hang out. We, we, we would work out together and lift weights together and train together and um, spend a lot of time together. So that's something I think is really important. Yeah, that, that, that whole mentoring thing is hugely important, isn't it? It is, it the, is. T- um, so the, I've, I've read into the, the total wellness program that the NFL has started. Can you, I, can you just tell me a little bit about that? What's your knowledge of and experience of that? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was back in, um, and specifically the total wellness program i'm i'm not as i'm not as familiar with that i'm really more familiar with um it's somewhat of a transition program that the nfl has which around 2011 2012 uh, they developed this program to help those statistics you talked about the 80 percent divorce depressed or bankrupt statistics and so what the nfl players association specifically has done um because that total wellness may be an uh, uh, nfl enterprise supposed to NFL Players Association and Union. They've done a great job of trying to make sure that there are, for lack of better terms, wraparound services for players as they're transitioning out of the, the league. Oftentimes it takes people three years to retire because oftentimes you still think you're going to play, you're going to get a call. And so yeah. what the NFLPA has done is they've provided an opportunity for players to continue to train uh, free of charge and stay in shape, to have their meals covered, to stay ready, but also to do offer programs and evaluations for players to be able to continue their education and to get job experiences in other industries. Yeah, that's that's a great program, isn't it? And just looking after the guys uh, in that way is really forward thinking. Do you see many of the players taking them up on it? Because I know here in Premier League football, soccer here, um, they're, they they offer a couple of things, but actually getting the, the younger players to to join in is really tough because the guys just don't even want to think about the possibility of retirement. So do you see it do you see it working and what are the keys to it working if it is? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Oftentimes there are certain players who are very focused on the game right now and being the best they can be and don't want to be distracted by other things. They want to invest all they have into the game. There are also some other players who understand that the game can be short lived. And so they want to invest all they can into making sure that they're going to be set after they finish playing. And so it's somewhat of a balance. And early in my career, I was very much thinking of, of what's going to happen when I'm done playing because I never know um, what's going to happen in the future. This is a not for long league. And then as I got a little bit towards the middle of my career, I said, let me try to invest more into this specific game because I actually realized that the better I play, the more opportunities I'll have. And so to answer your question, there are players taking advantage of, of some of the programs. And I, but I think it's, it's up to that specific player to figure out where and how and why he's going to invest his time into and in, and in what ways does he feel like best serves him and his family and his community. Sure. Just going back to your career for a minute. So here, of course, American football often gets compared with rugby, which is a really bad comparison. They're both great sports. 
in their own individual rights. But what for you makes American football so special? What is it, uh, you know, for, for the Brits, they say it's two stop start. There are too many breaks. Um, and, and I tend to define, define it as a giant game of violent chess is the best thing that I can, the best way I can describe it to them. For you, what, what's, exci- what's really excited about football? What, what really gets you going? Yeah, I love that description of violent game of, 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 of a, a, a game of violent chess. I like that because it is there's a lot of pieces that people don't know about. They think it's just a brute sport and people are just running into each other and hitting each other for no reason. But there's so much calculated um, risks, not only between every play, but also between quarters and halftime, um, between players on the field, coaches on the sidelines, some coaches up in the box looking down from above. There's so much many calculations and permutation permeations and all these different options that can be had so for me that's what I enjoy the most about the game it's not just a game of physicality but it's also a game of of intelligence yeah well especially you for you at linebacker so you know when you're you're having to read the whole game what what before a snap what's going through your head uh what what are you preparing yourself for before the snap yeah, well, before the snap was going through my head is the weeks and weeks of preparation that we did leading up to the to the game. Usually a couple seconds before the snap or maybe even 10 to 15 seconds before the snap, I'm looking at the formation and looking at what, what if anything, is going to give me a hint or a clue into what type of play the offense is running. They have different personnel groups, different types of players on the field. So I'm wondering if they put an extra player on the uh, different type of position on the field to run a certain type of play. So all that's going through my mind. Then in in addition to that, it's me looking at the player in front of me, the offensive lineman, and seeing if he's going to give me any hints or clues as to what play may be coming. And in addition to that is also the play that we called on defense. What are my my roles and responsibilities? And all that's going through my mind. Those are just a few of the things going through my mind before the snap. Usually once that play is snapped, it's just reaction. Just reflex then. Yeah, that's good. What uh, would be one or two highlights of your career? Yeah, I think the highlights of my career, one of them is my rookie year. I ended up starting as a rookie and, uh, and ended up tying the, the record for sacks on a quarterback uh, for the Arizona Cardinals. I had seven sacks and five or so forced fumbles. So I you know, had a stellar rookie season. That was definitely a highlight. Um, another, and so early in my career, another highlight was towards the middle of my career when I had switched teams and I had kind of worked my way up to getting back to I had a couple of injuries and worked my way back to getting where I felt like I was back to myself. And I just felt that power and that strength and that uh, those instincts start to kick back in. And that was around you know, 2017 or so um, just really felt like I was in a groove. Just changing gear a little bit now. I want to get just a bit more current. So, so on some of the current events that are happening now and, and the way they relate to, to you, to football, uh, I didn't realize until very recently, I used to listen to a podcast that you were in, Relevant is doing a sports podcast, and I used to love it. Uh, and then I recently found that you're doing the Home Team podcast. So I've been trying to listen to as many of those as I can, r- just really enjoying it. And you've had some fascinating discussions on there about the current race relation issues that are, that are well, all over the world now sparked by George Floyd murder. And I've just loved some of the conversations that you've had. Uh, and I find your voice to be 
a voice of wisdom and a voice of reason. Uh, and I was listening to one the other day. I, I just find your voice to be a voice of grace as well. And so I just want to say to you, I, I love what you're saying. And I love the way you're saying it. Thank you. And I just want to pick up on it, though. So I think in one of our emails, I, I just said, you know, just at the beginning of, of all of this, Roger Goodell came out and said, uh, he's the commissioner of the NFL, for anyone listening that doesn't know, and said that he had been wrong about taking a knee and uh, that, that perhaps that protest should have been handled differently. And I guess the first question is, do you think that what he said is enough now? Do you like, do you think that that's a, a good enough apology? Yeah, I think the great thing is that the apology is being followed up with action. Just last week, he came, Roger Goodell, I invited him to come to an event we were doing in Chicago and uh, we were building a food mart in what's known to as a, known as a food desert. And he came and showed up at that event. He's also been on the phone with a bunch of different athletes trying to figure out ways he can support. And so, is an apology enough? No, but an apology, uh, call it repentance, if you will, along with action, uh, is is definitely enough. Yeah, and that's that's so good to hear. Um, I think it was a big step for him to say what he said at all, wasn't it? It was. It was. It was. It was surprising and a, and a quite a big turnaround. In addition to, I, you know, it's great to hear that you've had this event and you've invited him to it, but you have a, a really good relationship with the Chicago Bear owners, which is where you've been playing your football recently. Can you just explain how that, who they are and how that relationship came about? Uh, because your relationship with them has been, it's just great to watch and it seems has been quite eye-opening for them and, and maybe for you as well. Yeah, um, so the chairman of the Chicago Bears, name is George McCaskey. And we developed a really good relationship over the years, actually, it's funny, that relationship developed before I even came to Chicago. I was playing for the Arizona Cardinals, and I knew the ownerships, ownership there pretty well, Michael Bidwell and Bill, Bill Bidwell and Nancy Bidwell. And when I went to Chicago, apparently, uh, unbeknownst to me, the Bidwells had reached out to the McCaskies and said, hey, you're getting a really great player, but also a really great person. I didn't know much of that. I just, I was going about my day. And I was doing an event, like I mentioned, I love bringing people together and I did an event and I invited my teammates and the event was on a Monday and I was at the mall on a Friday and at the mall, I ran into George McCaskey and he comes up to me and he says, Sam, I heard you doing an event on Monday. Why was I not invited? And I paused because I didn't know if that was, was he serious? Is he joking? Am I in trouble? And, he, and, and I, my quick response was, oh, well, I'm so glad you wanted to come. Here's the time, here's the date, here's the location. I'd love for you to be there. And lo and behold, three days later, he shows up. And not only does he show up, he's the first one there. And he's also wearing an, an Acho jersey. He's wearing my jersey. We did a celebrity oh, wedding. One serving the food uh, to, the, to the fans, to the guests. And so from that point on, he had my trust. And he had, he had earned my trust because he had given me the trust based off of the opinion and the actions that he had seen. And so what that formed into was a really good relationship to where during the 2017 season, peacefully during the national anthem and trying to figure out what to do, he and I had a conversation and that conversation revolved around things we can do in addition to protest to make change. And those things included going to a prison in the United States, the largest maximum security prison in, in the United States, going on a police ride along, riding with the police through 
one of the, the roughest, toughest neighborhoods in Chicago. We also went to a museum and met with uh, political commentators and went to take classes in the college and, and went to rap concerts and all these things just to learn more about the culture that we live in. And so I think that was probably one of the most fun experiences I've had. That's amazing. And I love the way, I mean, he initiated the contact with you and, uh, and then you guys were able to, to actually build a relationship out of it. it. You know, again, like you're saying with Goodell, he's following up his words with actions. George McCaskey also followed it up, didn't he? It wasn't a one-off. Here, let's do this event together just to show everyone that, I'm, that I can make a difference or that I'm not racist or whatever it is, that he's actually built a, re- a relationship with you that has continued. And, and I just think that speaks volumes about him and about you. I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day where you were talking about cancel culture. In the UK, I hadn't heard that term before. So it was fascinating, fascinating listening to that. Can you just, just before I ask you a question about it, can you explain to the UK audience what the cancel culture is and how it relates uh, to this current, the racist debate and the, the difficulty in relationships at the minute? Yeah, so cancel culture is essentially the idea that if you say the wrong thing on social media or if you act in a way that society disapproves of at large, society at large disapproves of, you will and can be canceled. TV shows oftentimes get canceled or um, events get canceled. And so it's almost as if people have this power to cancel you as an individual, you or your company or your brand or your following. And so this, this is taken root a couple times. I know that Deshaun Jackson, who plays receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles, and he made comments that were very basic and um, uneducated comments about um, Jewish people. And so this idea was, well, we're going to cancel him. We're not going to follow him. We're going to burn his jerseys. I mean, people go to extremes in cancel culture. And the idea behind canceling cancel culture is the fact that people need to understand and learn and be educated as opposed to canceling someone how about you spend time to get to know them how about you teach them how about you sit with them how about you love them how about you help them understand what they may be missing and so that's the essence of cancel culture and also the solution to it yeah and you know i I think again the way you've allowed that relationship to build uh with um george mccaskey and uh and other people that you do relate to that i mean you're you're a great example of just because this is a rich white person, I'm not going to not have the relationship because obviously if you don't have the relationship, nothing can ever change. Uh, And as you say, you love bringing people together. Where can you see the cancel culture happening? Uh, So you've mentioned one example there. Where can you see that happening? That if you can think of an example, if you can't find, but uh, currently where it's it's really hurting relationships and hurting the conversation going forward. It happens all over social media. Um, going back to sports again, Drew Brees is the quarterback who plays for the New Orleans Saints, and he made a comment a few weeks ago saying, "I will never and can never kneel during the national anthem because." 
my father and grandfathers fought in wars for this country and I'm not going to disrespect the flag in that way. And some of his statements, I think, were a little bit, um, they fell on deaf ears, not really deaf ears, they weren't received, taken well because, uh, yes, Drew Brees is white, but there are black people whose parents and grandparents fought for this country as well. And those people would say, yes, please peacefully protest, please take a knee during the national anthem. And so uh, people wanted to cancel, for lack of better terms, Drew Brees. And I think that's one issue, one area where there's a problem because Drew Brees didn't know what he was saying. He didn't realize that uh, the comments he made were uh, hurtful and were um, not considerate and probably not even really accurate of what was of the situation at hand. The real situation is not uh, protesting a flag. Uh, it's protesting police brutality and pro protesting uh, people being murdered, uh, whether by police officers or um, based off of their race. Yeah, I, I totally right. Just about that issue in particular, you know, I've I've had that argument with my own family. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a white guy from South Carolina, and my dad was a Marine. Any uh, hint that I might think that protesting by taking a knee during the national anthem was okay was just was unacceptable for a white boy from South Carolina. You know, I, I have I've had friends who didn't want to talk to me because I was like, actually, I, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think there's a problem with this. And, and it actually leads into a deeper issue, I think, doesn't it, of what are we as Americans actually worshiping these days? Um, what is really important to us? And I, I think we've, we've got way off track when, you know, the either the, the commissioner of the league or the president of the United States can tell you what, or, what you can or can't protest um, when you can or can't take a knee. And I think we've begun to worship our rights rather uh, than we say we worship God who gives us these rights. But I think we've become, I think we started worshiping the rights that we have, the right to freedom, the right to carry a gun, the right to whatever, over the God who gave us the rights. Um, and I think that's a, a really bad, dangerous position to get in. I don't know if you would agree. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. I'll definitely agree with that. I think that sometimes we get caught up in our political affiliations or get caught up in our, our, our country or even our state and we start forgetting the bigger picture. I think we've we've come to love if you I don't know if you have a comment on this, but we for me we've come to love our our rights, forgetting the responsibilities that come with those rights. We like rights, but we don't like responsibilities. Uh, and again, I think that's a very dangerous place to be. So again, I guess on the difference that you're making and the way that you're building relationships, even when relationships are hard to build, do you believe that players can actually make a difference in society? Do you think that, that more players could use their platform to make a bigger difference in society? Uh, I would say, uh, not to say that's the wrong question, but I would say that players are already using their platform to make a difference in society. I, LeBron James is a prime example. Sure. Player, current player using his his influence. Muhammad Ali was another example of a former player. There's so many current former players and even uh, just everyday players. There's so many 
me and me and some friends, we started a nonprofit. We called it, we're calling it Athletes for Justice. Started a few years ago because um, we wanted to make an impact in our society. And that's not just me. That's athletes from um, who now play for a bunch of different teams all over the United States, joining together to make an impact. And so I do think that athletes are using their voice, but it's not just professional athletes. I think everyday athletes, people who ride their bikes in the morning, walk their dogs, take runs, uh, can and will use their voice to make change. Just recently here in the UK, there was uh, with the, the lockdown, kids not going to school. Um, I'm not sure what it was like. It was probably very similar in the States, but a lot of kids, if they don't go to school, they don't eat that day. And I know there are a lot of neighborhoods in the States where it's very similar that the kids, if they miss, if they, if they missed every other class, they were at school for lunch because that was the only meal they were going to get. Uh, and uh, so a lot of kids were, were missing school because they were closed and weren't eating. And there was a, actually a professional soccer player here, Marcus Rashford, plays for, the, uh, plays for Manchester United. Uh, and just this, this one, and he's only young, maybe 22 years old, maybe less, uh, used his voice, started a social media campaign, campaigning the government to be sure that these kids were being fed even during lockdown. And um, in the end, the government made changes to laws just because of this, this one athlete using his platform. Uh, and it, it's, it's just a great story. And I, again, I love what you're doing, the way you're using your platform, the way you're mentoring other younger players uh, to do their thing as well. Uh, so I know you've, um, you've been in the running for the Walter Payton uh, Man of the Year. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us, just tell us what that is. Yeah. So the Walter Payton Man of the Year is an award in the NFL that uh, recognizes players for their on and off the field achievements, though both their on-field success and their also civil or social um, efforts to help try and make the, their communities better. And so funny enough, the first year I was nominated for that award was when I actually, Walter, people who don't know, Walter Payton, played for the Chicago Bears. And so I became a Chicago Bear. And the very next year after, I becoming a, after becoming a Chicago Bear, I was nominated for this award. And so that was a really great experience, just being able to, one of the, you know, each team has a nominee. I was one of 32 players nominated for the award. And for me, it wasn't a goal at the time. Um, I just wanted to continue to help my community and serve. And so um, it was definitely an honor to be nominated. You know, you, we should, You've mentioned now quite a few things that you've been involved with, uh, charities, working all you know in the States, uh, Nigeria, your uh, group of friends, Athletes for Justice. You're involved in so much uh, that is not about football. Can you just tell me how much of a part your faith plays in all that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, for me, the, my faith is the undergirding. It's like the root of a tree. Imagine you see a tree growing and you've got the tree and you've got the branches and leaves and all these different things are some of like branches or leaves. Um, but my faith is, is the root of everything that I do. And everything that I try to do is kind of born out of that. And so bringing people together is born out of faith, writing a book out of faith even playing football right I know God gave me gifts and abilities I want to maximize them I want to use them to the best of my ability and so all that just trying to be obedient to God like born out of faith yeah so it's it's it is at the root of everything you do the way that you've lived your life being a professional athlete you're often in positions where there are people you're surrounded by people of 
of no faith or a different faith. Have you ever found that challenging or has it always been something for you that it was, it was just easy? Yeah. I think of sports, whether you're talking about football, American football or football or basketball sports, you're always around. The great thing, at least in my opinion about sports is that you get exposed to different people with different backgrounds from different cultures. And so when I think about sports, whether it comes to your faith or your political beliefs or your societal beliefs or your upbringing, upbringing, that's the beauty of sport. It brings different people together and you get to have really cool, or some people refer to them as you get to have uncomfortable conversations that I think is really a, a great way to grow. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it can be challenging uh, when, you, when you're surrounded by people who don't necessarily think the same as you. But as you say, at the same time, it's, it's a great challenge when you see it as an opportunity to grow. I, th I think that's really, really good. Um, going back to uh, the mental health, or where we, kind of where we started, and you, you know, the eighty percent of people struggling uh, once they retired. Actually, mental health in professional sports, um, American football, soccer here. Uh, it's not just a problem. The mental health issues aren't just a problem after retirement. They're becoming a bigger and bigger problem during the playing career as well. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that, that people are struggling so much? Is it the social media pressure that they're feeling? Is it the pressure from the next young thing trying to come up behind them? Is it the lack of preparation uh, for the, the pressures that they were going to face? What? Why do you think so many so many athletes are struggling with mental health at the minute? Yeah, well, it's not just athletes, it's everybody. You know, I, I think a lot of us, we tend to keep our emotions in and we don't want to people to see the real us. Um, I recently wrote a book called Let the World See You, How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes. And I wrote that book because everybody's faking. People are pretending, mm -hmm. acting like they have it all together and they don't. We don't. I don't. And so that book is for anybody who struggles with these ideals that society tries to put under you. And you say, that's not me, football player. I'm, I'm supposed to be this rough, tough guy. I'm super emotional and friendly and, 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 and jovial. And but people would look at me and say, well, that's, how, how do you even play? You're supposed to be mean. I thought you were, you know, this, I thought you were that. And so, and that's just a, a minor example, but in all reality, there's so many of us who live lives that we weren't meant to live trying to please other people or trying to just do what we think is going to be the next right step without understanding that like God's given us gifts and abilities that the world needs to see. And so that's why I wrote that book, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm unbelievably excited about it. And it actually just got available for pre-order now at samachobook.com. And it, it comes out this fall and I can't wait for people to read it. But um, the reason I think people are struggling with mental health or even just pressure is this idea of not showing themselves. You can only hide for so long. You can only pretend for so long. Eventually, as a friend of mine used to say, a counselor I talked to used to say, he said, the body keeps the score. You can try and fake and pretend, but the body keeps the score. Um, eventually, you're going to break. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, and just tell us again where we can find that. Yeah, so uh, you can go, go pre-order it at Sam Acho Book. 
www.bigfootbook.com. Uh, you can find out. So there's some really cool pre-order offers available. Uh, you're going to be able to get a sample of the first couple chapters, read those before anybody else. Uh, there's a really cool video that'll kind of tell us more about who we are and how we can um, do the things that we were meant to do. Um, so those are all going to be available as well. So sammachobook.com is where you can find those. Great. And tell us uh, about your, the podcast that you're on. Yeah. So um, doing a podcast and, uh, called the home team podcast. And it's pretty much talking about the intersection of faith, sport, culture, family, um, talking about all these things that seem like they intertwine. And so often people would keep them all separate. We said, no, I think there is a, there is a place where faith does intersect with sport and faith and sport, sport intersect with family, faith, sport, and family intersect with culture and social issues. And so we kind of just delve around this, the intersection of all these different topics, the home team podcasts, and you can find that whenever, wherever podcasts are, are found. Yeah. And where else can people find you? Yeah. So uh, follow me on social media um, at the Sam Acho, T-H-E Sam Acho. But more than anything, I want people to read that book because it's going to change your life. So more than anything, you can find me at sammachobook.com. That's got a link to all my social media accounts, got a link to uh, some stuff about the book and a link to um, even a website I've got as well. So sammachobook.com. Great. I just want to um, hit you with a few quick questions, just about uh, just a few of the fun ones. Um, we've asked you what your highlight was of your career. That's great. Um, who is the best player or best athlete you've ever played against? Two different questions. Uh, the best player I've played against, I would say, is Tom Brady. Um, the yeah. best athlete I've played against, I'd say, a guy named Cordero Patterson. He's a, a kick returner, special, he's a special, special player. Yeah. The, now, here in, uh, in the UK, we often talk about when you have a coach uh, or, or a manager, there, there are kind of two different types of managers. There's the manager who just tells you what to do and you go do it. And then there's the manager who is the better man manager who gets beside you, gets to know you as a person, uh, and you're often more willing to play for that guy than the guy that just yells at you. Who, who in your career has been that person, that, that good man manager who just knew how to get the best out of Sam Ocho? That was my high school basketball coach. His name is Amazing. Greg Geiler. Yeah, his name is Greg Geiler. And he coached me my senior year. And he just believed in me. He believed in me when, not to say when no one else would, but he pushed me to levels and limits that I didn't know I could go to. And not only did he believe in me, but we also put, we worked towards that belief. And so, and we saw the, the fruits of it. And so hands down, Greg Geiler, he's, he's actually the godfather of my oldest child now. And uh, he oh, is, uh, he's, yeah, Greg Geiler. Oh, fantastic. That's a, that's a really, really good answer. You know what, Sam, it has been an unbelievable pleasure just uh, being able to chat with you for these few minutes. I, again, I can't tell you how uh, pleased and privileged that I feel uh, just getting you to come on the show. So Thank you for giving up your time, uh, pro probably your lunch time there in uh, Chicago at the minute. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And uh, I'm glad, to, glad we got a chance to do this. Yeah, finally, finally worked it out. So uh, I know you're a busy man. And uh, we'll definitely be praying for you as you look for that, uh, 
that next job and just keep up the great work that you're doing. Um, you're, you're, you're making a huge difference. So thank you very much. Awesome. Same to you. All right. You have a great day. All right. You too. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Sing When You're Losing with the remarkable Sam Acho. Don't forget to go and pre-order his book now at samachobook.com. That's Sam, A-C-H-O, book.com. Please look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and anywhere you find your podcasts. If you found this helpful, leave a review and spread the word as well. Don't forget to subscribe or check back for next week's exciting conversation. The world is a crazy and unpredictable place, so don't forget to sing when you're losing.